Hello and welcome to the Hard Reset Podcast. I'm Nick Tucker and this is Taylor Hamilton. Hi. I'm sorry. You're going to do that. <laughs> that camera? Is, is that camera. You want the red you, light? The one there. They all have red lights, as it turns out. Thank uh, God. I hope. Right. <laughs> well, over there. If one doesn't, let's solve that problem. Right <laughs> this is Hard Reset, a series about rebuilding our world from scratch. Hello and welcome to the Hard Reset Podcast. I'm Nick Tucker, and this is Taylor Hamilton. Hi. We are the co-creators of Hard Reset, a show on Freethink that asks the question, what if you could rebuild the world from scratch? And on the show, we go and interview the people and view the technologies that are being developed that might allow us to build that future where we do rebuild things from scratch. So for this episode of the podcast, we're going to talk about an episode of Hard Reset we did focused on Every Table, which is a social equity franchise program that's being started in Southern California. And it's a super fun episode. If you haven't seen it yet, please do check it out. It's one of our favorites. Uh, there should be a link in the description below this video. We're joined today by Rob Chapman-Smith. Hi, I'm the editor-in-chief of Freethink. And Toby Morishano. Hey, I'm the community manager at Freethink. We're looking forward to diving into this episode and some of the ideas, some of the questions we didn't get to answer and some of the audience questions we'd like to answer uh, that we just weren't able to do in the first episode. So we hope that you enjoy this and you'll stick around and watch the whole thing and make sure you like and subscribe so we can share this whole podcast series with you. So the first question we would often ask ourselves when we started developing episodes for Hard Reset was, what is the Hard Reset here? Uh, so I'm curious from your perspective, Taylor, what was the hard reset that we were covering? So I think there are actually two big hard resets. And I am a total fanboy of Every Table. I think they're doing so many amazing, cool things. This is actually the second video that we've done on Every Table. Uh, and the first one that we did, we started filming right before the pandemic, and then uh, the whole world shut down. And then we were like, okay, well, are they going to go out of business like all these other restaurants? And their business just started booming even more during the pandemic. Um, so the big hard reset, the first one, is really on what a fast food restaurant is and how it operates. Right. And the guy who started this, super smart guy, he comes from the world of investment banking and was a hedge fund manager. And so he applies a lot of that thinking, that Wall Street banking thinking, to how to eradicate food deserts, right. how to really bring great, healthy, sweet greens and whole foods type foods to lower income communities. And I think that the business model that they have is super interesting. So a few things with that. One, each of their restaurants doesn't have its own kitchen because if you need your own kitchen in each restaurant like McDonald's or anything or KFC or anything, it costs a lot of money to do that, which means that you can roll out slower, which means that if you, you know, it just, it creates all these problems, right? And so they're like, well, what if we just have one kitchen and it's a centralized kitchen and then we're going to make all this food in this kitchen and then we're going to distribute it to all these different stores mm -hmm. every day. And so that's pretty interesting because it means that you can make each of these stores for a lot less money, which means you can roll these stores out a lot quicker. You know, I think to Sam, the, the founder's mentality, he's like, well, you know, I'm making the food and they could go to a restaurant or maybe they go to a vending machine. Right. So a food desert is used to generally describe the place where it is a far drive or walk in order to get fresh, healthy fruits, vegetables, and otherwise food. Right. right? And there are a lot of food deserts all over the country, right? And so in LA, we talk about places in Compton and Watts and South Los Angeles being food deserts. But I think what 
every table has done is to say, well, you know what is also a food desert? A hospital. Right. Because if you're going into like a lot of hospitals, you know, and you're a nurse that's working there, like the food that you're going to get at the cafeteria might not be great. It's not going to be very healthy for you. And so what if we put a vending machine in the lobby of that hospital, and then we just started taking this food that we're making this one kitchen and just started filling these vending machines with it. Right. And then, you know, there's a bunch of people doing things like DoorDash, companies like doing DoorDash, and they're like, well, what if we were our own version of DoorDash? And there was meal subscriptions. So they've really taken this idea of what a fast food restaurant is and taken it away from the McDonald's and the Subways of the world and really brought it into this really modern instantiation of it. Yeah, I love the fact that they were taking these very, very small modules of like a refrigerator with a credit card swipe machine and putting it in college campuses, hospitals, apartment buildings, all these places where you could never fit a whole restaurant there mm -hmm. because there's just so much infrastructure. But it's it's still a great place to reach people who need healthy food and, and can get it very quickly. It's, it's a brilliant business model in that respect. And it's a brilliant business model specifically for a city where it's going to be even something like LA that's kind of spread out. Like it's still relatively dense. Mm -hmm. So you can have something where you have one kitchen and you could have 50 stores within a few miles of each other. And that is going to be like a really successful business model for you. They're, they're starting to expand into New York. And I was like, well, are you going to like, how, what's your expansion strategy? How are you going to do this? He's like, well, it costs us a lot of money when we go into a new market. But once we go into that market, we can spread that cost over all these different right. stores and different ways that we can operate. So I think that's the first hard reset. What I find interesting is that there's, there are two hard resets here. The first one you just explained, like this is a totally different model for restaurant. But the second one is really a hard reset on franchising. And franchising, for people who aren't familiar with, is a way that these restaurant chains grow really quickly, where instead of saying, hey, I, the McDonald's Corporation, will find all the money to build 30,000 restaurants, what they'll do is say, listen, if you would like to be the owner of one of our restaurants, you confront this amount of cash and you will get to keep the profits or some percentage of the profits from that location. And so you're able to get 30,000 people to each finance that huge expansion. Uh, obviously, you don't go from zero to 30,000 all at once. That takes decades. But that's the general idea that you can work with. You can crowdsource essentially investment. Now, over time, this model has worked so well that it has essentially created a class of investor all to itself. You have to have a pretty large amount of money to buy into a franchise. And so it's created the, a class barrier that I think uh, people might be surprised at how expensive it is. Yeah, yeah it, usually you have to be a multimillionaire. Yeah, and it didn't start that way. Because right. uh, and there's a, there was a great book, I won the Pulitzer, I forget the title of it, but it talked about how the franchising of McDonald's restaurants uh, in the beginning of McDonald's franchising was really helpful for the same communities that every table is trying to help now, right? right? A lot of the disaffected black communities in, in, in inner cities. And so franchising has just transformed into this sort of class distinction when it was originally supposed to be a ladder into a, uh, a way out of poverty and a way into opportunity. Yeah. And that is supposed to be the promise of Subway. Right? Right. You're always like, Subway makes mediocre sandwiches at best. Why? <laughs> I disagree with this. <laughs> Why are there so many Subways? I love right. Subway. Okay. I do like Subway too. Really? Really? Yeah. What's your, what's your sandwich? Uh, Veggie Delight. Okay. Okay. I can't even touch it. Yours? I'm, I'm not Veggie Delight. Um, I really like just like a good turkey sub, and uh, I really like their their meatball sandwiches are really good. Okay, so yeah. above mediocre sandwich. That's your that's your take. That's that is a hot take, dude. If you're driving cross country, and you want a healthy meal, you cannot really beat that for like a franchise choice. 
Right. Now, why are there so many subways? Apparently because Veggie Delight and these turkey and meatballs <laughs> are so great. The other reason is that you don't need a kitchen. Mm. So you oh. basically just need one of these, like, they're kind of long table refrigerator things. <laughs> a cold table. <laughs> yeah. And a plug. And, like, you're kind of good to go there. Yeah. And Subway, their franchise model has all sorts of problems. John Oliver just, like, did a whole piece on this. <laughs> well, they basically let, from what I hear, anyone open a Subway. Whereas a lot of companies who franchise will be, like, doling out one per area or something like that. You can open a subway next door to another subway or something like that, and they'll just let you because they just make the money licensing the name and stuff. Right. Yeah, but franchising, to your point, it helps you know these companies grow really quickly. Mm -hmm. And you know every table is such a mission-driven company. They're like, okay, well, we want to grow and expand really quickly, but we also have this mission of really not only eradicating food desert, but really trying to eradicate poverty and the, mm -hmm. the wealth gap. So their philosophy on this is that talent is equally distributed, but opportunity is not. And so what can they do with regards to, if someone is running a manager, running a store in Watts, they know that community. If they're from Watts and they know that community better than anybody else that's gonna come in, they might not be a millionaire, but they might be the best person that is going to be able to own and operate that store and really put a lot of love into that. Now, normally, they would never be able to own a restaurant like that. Right. And so every table's thinking like, well, let's think about that really differently. Like, let's figure out a way of helping them to own this restaurant right. and then figure out a way that they can get capital from somewhere else. Right. And so that's what they've done here. Yeah. What I find interesting is that so much of access to capital comes down to how does the institution of banking think of you as a person? Mm, right. Yeah. And if you are someone who has, through no fault of your own, like not had access to all the same opportunities as other people and doesn't have the kind of credit score they're interested in seeing, you are kind of screwed. And I thought what essentially that credit score is just a risk assessment. And that's what this organization is doing is saying, well, we're, we've, we know you. We know you're willing to work the hours. You're clearly dedicated. You're clearly talented. And you're working your butt off. And we don't feel like it's a risk to try and stake you the capital to make this. So it's taking a different approach to how do you gauge someone's ability to take a loan, run a business. And it's, it's really smart because these folks are typically people who've been working in every tables and know the system and they know these people really well. Yeah, and I think that there's this insidious thing that happens in, in America in like the banking system and other communities where the idea is that poor people are lazy. Right. That the reason that you are poor is because you're lazy. And that cannot be further from the truth for yeah. a lot of people, right? Yeah. That poor people are working much harder. Yeah, the thing that poverty robs you of most is time. Yeah, mm. right. Exactly. And so someone like Dorcia, who we cover in the episode and is the first franchise owner that has gone through the, this program for every table, she's working three jobs, right? And she's a single mom and she's in school. Like she is working her ass off. Yeah. And so it's like, of course she should be someone that could own a store. She's right. not, no, she doesn't have the money. We can figure out how to get the money. Let's right. figure out how to do that. Yeah. And part of that, which was touched on the episode is that it's in some cases at least coming from nonprofit foundations that are investing yeah. and they're investing for profit, but it's not the only thing they're looking for. They're also looking for the money to do good 
in a particular community. So they're literally investing in a community mm-hmm. as opposed to a bank, which is solely looking at the bottom line, Right. usually. Yeah. yeah, this is like the part of the episode that I wanted to get into much more, right? Right, And it's really around how we think about like foundations and nonprofit. And it's just like, right. oh, that's, that's kind of nice. Like, blah, blah, blah. It's like, <laughs> no, there are a lot of nonprofits and foundations and they have billions and billions and billions of dollars. I, I think it was something like, it's well, trillions. It's a trillion. Yeah, yeah. Like two trillions, trillions of dollars, and they invested in some really stupid things. Yeah. Right. And so the reason that they have all that money is that they basically have invested their endowment or their, you know, the the total sum of all their money. They put it in all these, basically, Wall Street, all right. these companies, and then those companies, you know, tend to generate income at about like the S and P. So three to five percent per year. And then they take that three to five percent per year and then they give that money away. Right. And so Judy Belk, who we feature in the episode, who's uh, the head of the Cal Wellness Foundation, she's like, well, what about that like hundred percent? What, yeah. what about that money that we normally give to Wall Street? Like, what if we actually took that money and invested it in good investments? Like, right. things where we actually believe that these companies are going to make money, but they also align with the values that we have as a foundation. Right. And so I think Annenberg is another foundation that has really supported every table. And like, I think to me, it's like, you could just look at every table and I live in LA and you could just see, I, I see these green trucks all around. I see it every table, like opening up on every corner. You're just like, they're gonna do well, right? Right. So it's like, of course we should invest in them. Oh, and it's a way of taking the amount of money that we as a foundation have and can only give usually three to 5% away, we can give way more money away. And it's actually not giving away money. Right. It's actually investing that money. Yeah, that's the most it's part. investing in people like Dorcia. And, right. and when you think about what nonprofits are supposed to do when they have those like social good impact style things, that is the best investment that a nonprofit could do, which is literally investing in the community and the people who can create the businesses or the franchises or own the franchises that can change the economic landscape of a neighborhood. Right. Like that's way more impactful in leveraging all the tools of the economic game that we have in America to just change neighborhoods and right. change outcomes for people versus what folks typically invest in, which is like programs that kind of don't really work and don't have any price signals. And so it's kind of just a feel good thing in the first place. So yeah. And you say the word game. And I think that that's actually a really appropriate word to use when we're talking about these like large financial systems. Cause you know, during the pandemic, like everything locked down and nobody's working and companies are going out of business, but then Wall Street is just getting record profits, right? Right. And so while we were filming this episode and we were filming it at, at Judy Belk's house, she's like, you know, we're we're gonna make like 20, 25% this year. Right. Right. And at the same time, there's just millions of people that are gonna be out of work because of the they're gonna lose their houses because of this pandemic, because of this lockdown. And so there's this huge discrepancy. And she's like, how do we give away more money? Right. right. <laughs> Which is a really cool job. And I think for Judy, she, we, we cut this part of the, the episode and I wish we could have kept it in, but it was like, she grew up poor in Virginia. Right. And she grew up without running water, without plumbing in her house. All she did every birthday wish was to ask for a toilet until right. she was like 12 years old, right? That's where she comes from. And now she lives in a gated community in LA. Like she's really changed her entire life around, right? But she is an exception. She is an exceptional woman. And I think the question is... She's an exception among exceptions. She's an exception. (laughs) There are a lot of exceptional people 
who never are able to sort of dig their way out, yeah, right. through, even though they make monumental amounts of effort. So even within that, she's an exception. So the question is, how does this, her story not become exceptional, right, right? right? How does this become a commonplace thing? How do you create an entire system around this? And that's very much what every table is trying to do. They're trying to create a system right. by which they're able to do that. And so this isn't something where, you know, every table just like goes and like goes down to like a, a poor community is like, you, you should run at every table. <laughs> yeah, they're, right. not, they're not Oprah with the car, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, there's a level of diligence there, right? It's someone that's worked at every table for a while. Mm -hmm. And is it, willing to do a lot of work in terms of the training as well. Yeah, there's a whole, they call it every table university, right. where there's this whole thing around like, how do you own a business? How do you do the accounting for this? How do you do the hiring? What are leadership skills? Where, you know, so they're doing kind of like a, a mini MBA that allows them to be a better owner operator. Well, when you pitched this episode, I think you also called it like a hard reset for capitalism. Yes. Um, it sort of explain what did you mean by that? The fuck did I mean by that? <laughs> <laughs> I, I can talk about this a little bit because I, I, I mean, I, I think maybe it's a hard reset for access to capital. Interesting. I think, I think capitalism, the idea of like that this ability to take the you know, material wealth that we've accumulated mm -hmm. and reinvested in other things, um, that system of capitalism has become very distorted by the financial services market right. and all these other incentives to just, well, I'm going to take this money that we've you know, put into this hedge fund or into this um, investment bank, and we're going to use it in these very conservative ways. Because at the end of the day, as a financial institution, I don't have an incentive to take a risk on someone I don't know. Right. And you're responding to signals like credit scores and all these other things that, and, and all these other ways in which you gauge the risk or reward ratio of loaning someone money. And those may or may not be the whole picture. Right. They're very rarely the whole picture. How could they be the whole picture? They're, they're, yeah, they're often like misleading signals. Absolutely. Yeah. And so I think over the course of, of uh, our history, we've seen the ways in which people could access capital narrow significantly. Yeah. And I think this, to me, re-examined that core fundamental principle. I mean, I think uh, one of the common refrains you hear within people who are free market fundamentals really believe is like equality of opportunity, not equality of outcomes. Right. Yeah. But we don't have equality of opportunity right now. No, correct. Especially not when it comes to a loan to start a business. Mm -hmm. Especially not when it comes to the, in the savings to buy a franchise. Yeah. And I really like that this was a way of, of making that more equitable, maybe not perfect, but better. Mm -hmm. And it was doing it in a way that was still totally consistent with the free market. Yeah. I mean, every table is still a business that mm -hmm. is profitable and is making yeah. profits and is making smart business choices. Mm -hmm. And I think the pressure of the, the business interests of it keep it very sustainable. Mm -hmm. But the mission and the heart of it has really forced it to re-examine how it can bring those kinds of people into the operation that might otherwise be excluded. I, I agree. When you said this is a hard reset for capitalism, I think one of the things that's really important for innovation in the economy is to distangle some of the mechanisms by which we use to create things like investment and, and capital from just like the institution that takes advantage of it the most. Yes. Right. And so I think about the, the debt jubilee that happened with RIP medical debt, where they got a bunch of donations and they forget and they use the same tools that you use for debt collection for debt forgiveness. Yeah. Right. That's 
a hard reset for capitalism too. Yes. Right. And but and it's the same, quite literally the same neck mechanism. In fact, it was the same people because they were former debt collectors, but mm-hmm. they just had a change of heart. And I think one of the things with the tools of finance and our economic system is, is that the same ways that they are used for predatory and exclusion, you can just flip the incentives around if you just want to do something differently and it become a tool for opportunity or relief for yeah. a bunch of people. You know, I think when I look at how capitalism is talked about, it's, it's you know, about for-profit companies doing whatever they can to maximize shareholder value, right? right. And that any of like the ills of society and things that people or communities need, well, that's somebody else's problem. That's a nonprofit's problem or that's a government's problem or something else. And it's like every table saying, well, what if we use capitalism to also have this thing where we're helping large swaths of people Mm -hmm. and that's actually really good for our business as well. We're combining these two things together because, you know, we talk about the wealth gap Mm -hmm. and part of what, I think people really miss about this is that when you have money, the more money you have, the easier it is to make even more money. (laughs) (laughs) So if I have a million dollars in my bank account and I invest that in the S&P and it's like ticking up 3% a year, I can do nothing and I'm going to make $30,000 a year, right? Right. If I have $100 million and I do the exact same thing, I do nothing that year, (laughs) right? That money is, I I have that much more money. I've- Three million. Three million. (laughs) And I've done nothing else, right? Yeah. And so, and that's like a really crass example, but also like when you're in these circles, the kinds of people that you're surrounded by and they say like, hey, have you thought about investing in this or this deal or you're getting advice? You know, there's some statistic I saw that said that your net worth is about the average of your 10 best friends' net worth. Right. Mm. So basically, if you hang out with rich people, you're probably rich. Right. If you hang out with poor people, you're probably poor. Right. And part of that is that that's probably the social circle that you just kind of find yourself in. But it's also like, you know, people that are in those communities can provide access to information and to opportunities that you wouldn't get otherwise. And I think something like every table saying, like, why should that be the case? It's not like, rich people are inherently smarter or harder working. Right. They, and not just why should that be the case, but how can we change that? Yeah. Right. You know? Because I feel like people talk about these things in theory, but to come in with a solution that works and quickly and at scale is something that we don't see enough. Yeah. Yeah, scale is probably the key word here. And mm-hmm. I think uh, one of the things we often would examine with these is, is this something that can make impact at scale? Mm-hmm. And I think there's a clear yes here because their social equity funding model is essentially looking at foundations saying, can you use your endowment to fund this? And the amount, as we already discussed, of money that is sitting in foundation endowments is in the trillions of dollars. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely bananas. And we do, I think we looked at it as like, if you just spent 1%, invested 1% of it in these sort of social equity programs, that would allow something like 80,000 businesses to start mm-hmm. like this. 80,000 people in these communities um, to be able to start a business. And that's incredible. If you think about how quick, how much change that would create. Insane. So yeah, there's definitely a scale uh, that's potential there. It's just really, you know, I think once this starts to prove concept, I think there's clearly, there's interest in doing it and hopefully it'll grow. But even that's just 1% of using that to invest in it. And the down the line impact of that is incredible. You know, 
one of the things that I have reflected on more and more is growing up in a family where my parents ran a business um, was an incredible privilege because it taught me all of the, you know, the ideas very early on that I think a lot of people just aren't exposed to. There's a whole question about, you know, what are some of the things that don't exist as much anymore in America and the downstream effects of those things. Mm -hmm. And it's not that there aren't small businesses anymore, right? But it does seem like there's not as many small businesses in urban places Mm -hmm. as much. Like there's not an opportunity, like the rents are really too high (laughs) for a lot of things. So it's it's really tough. And to think about the the kids who don't get as much exposure to just like simple practices, like running a business and what your parents have to go through. Like that's a lot of, of a lot of learning that's left on the table. And it gets back to what you're saying about like the people you're surrounded by, the people in your peer group, you're more likely to emulate them than people who aren't. And if, if you have more people in these communities who are business owners, who are going to be mentors to those kids growing up in them, that has this huge follow on long tail effect that, you know, my neighbor is the guy who runs the grocery store. He taught me how to run a business. That guy uh, gave me everything I needed to start my own business. Now I run a mechanics place or whatever. Like there's just a huge, huge halo effect for this sort of investment. Yeah. I think the other thing that I think about you know, in relation to, you know, how things were in the past and how they are now. It's just the nature of work itself, you know, where it used to be that, you know, you go to a job, you you, you might have a fine job, but it's like, you know, you get your bills paid in school and like, you're going to have healthcare, you're going to be able to buy a house and like, you're going to be able to do all these things. And now for a lot of people's work, there's so much things that like the employer has to take on. They're providing you your healthcare, but they're not only providing your healthcare. Like a lot of managers are like basically therapists for their reports. <laughs> tell me, tell me more about this, Rob. Um, <laughs> I only cry, cry on the phone with Rob three or four times a week. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. You know, there's, there's just like so much social and it's your identity and who, what is my profession yeah. and who am I? I mean, we put so much effort and emphasis on what work is. And I I don't really see that actually changing much, right? There's like a whole level of philosophy that's coming out right now around like how we've gotten rid of or diminished a lot of the value of institutions, Mm -hmm. right? Whether that be governmental or religious or all the, you know, like we're, and so a lot of that means that there, that burden is getting placed on the employer. Yeah. Also the institutions also did it to themselves a little bit. Absolutely. So. But we also, that means we need Stupid to build institutions, <laughs> but we need to build new ones and better ones. Well, right? and, and when we talk about capitalism, right, every table is basically starting a school. They're a restaurant, right? But they're basically starting a school to teach mini MBAs. Right. Right. And they're just like, this is just the way that a business needs to operate now. Like we have to, I guess, fix capitalism. Okay, let's go. Let's try. And it's probably better than a college education. Yeah. <laughs> no. I mean, this is an institution, right? Yeah. Every table. And it's, it's not that like every table is the only people who can do this. You know, right. it's like, this is a formula that could be replicated by other people too. Right. Well, and I think that's what they're looking to do. They're just like, you know, I think we've figured out something with regards to how we're deploying this capital and how we're, this whole system is working. What happens if people are doing this for, you know, car mechanic shops, yeah. and right. barber shops, and like, what are the, all the other ways that this could be implemented in different industries, but with the same model? Yeah. Is Sam trying to recruit other people in different industries to do this? Not as far as I know. It didn't come up when we were interviewing him. So, but I wouldn't be surprised uh, if that's something that comes down the line. I think you'd be a fool not to look at this. Right. 
and think this is an opportunity. If you have a business that's potentially franchisable, I think you'd want to start thinking, well, how can I access more talented people closer to the communities and reduce the risk? Mm. One of the things I do think about this that is important to point out is it's not like you just say, hey, I'm going to crack open this $2 trillion war chest that these foundations have been building, and I'm just going to start throwing this money around and force them to invest a certain percentage of it. That is not what's happening. Right. What's happening, because that's a very top-down approach. This is a very bottom-up approach where people really close to the, the situation who know the, the people ha that they're investing in are selecting that. So I think it has to happen bottom-up. It has to happen where you've formed these relationships, you've reduced the risk, and you have created this ability to reliably invest in folks that you've, you've, you've recruited through your organization. Um, and I think there are other companies that have done this more or less um, through like co-op, things like that. But I don't think anyone's quite done it with the franchising model yet to this extent. And so, I, but I think it's, it's only a matter of time before more of this happens. Yeah, the first time that we interviewed Sam, I think every table had only six stores. Hmm. They're at about 55 stores now. Right, and about 50 here in LA and then seven in New York. Yeah, and one of the things he was saying when they were at the six store level, right, which is, you know, you're still small and growing, trying to figure out that, that business model, but he was already thinking about vending machines and he's already thinking about food delivery. And he was saying how like, you know, some of his advisors and stuff are just like, uh, just focus on one thing and do that well. He's like, no, I'm going to try all these things. And I love that spirit and that yeah. energy because especially at that scale, it's like you can experiment and we should be experimenting more and more with how businesses operate, how we operate our business, how we operate our industries and trying a lot of different things because it could work out better. I still think back to that first interview we filmed with him because it was A, such a great interview. And I remember chasing focus on the camera because I was running the B camera at the time and he was like leaning in and out because he just has all this energy. And it was exhausting because I was kind of, but I was also so captivated by what he was saying. He has a ton of passion for this. It's right. infectious. Yeah. You want him to win because he's so clearly so enthusiastic and uh, just very sincere about wanting to do good. Yes. Yeah. It's inspiring. Toby, I'm curious what the audience thought about this episode of Hard Reset. So we had a whole spectrum of responses, you know, and I think it was mostly positive, but it went from like, this is great, love to see it, good luck, and this is how banks used to work, like you were talking about, um, let's check back in a few years, I'm not so sure, you know, this is a scam, this is too good to be true. And then people who took the more ideological frame around capitalism and are like, this is still capitalist or it's neoliberal or it's <laughs> raising my taxes somehow or it's Islamic finance and that's good or it's Islamic it's, finance it's, and that's bad. What is, Islamic <laughs> what is Islamic finance? What is Islamic finance? My guess was that it was uh, an ethical way to lend money yeah. without uh, extortionate interest rates. That's what I gathered from the intent of the comment at yeah. least. Interesting. I'd never heard of that, but it makes sense. I mean, yeah. I know there are prohibitions against usury and other sorts of predatory lending things in the Quran, but I'd never heard of that as a practice outside that was known about as Islamic finance. That's a great term reset. to learn. Sharia law. <laughs> <laughs> Let's right. go. Yeah, I mean, certainly something like a payday loan is, yeah. you know, obviously taking advantage of a lot of poor people and 
and providing like just crazy interest rates, yeah, right? They're and, terrible. And this is uh, very much not that, right? right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there is an investment that is being made here, and like an entire business that is going around this. And there is a, from my recollection, there is a loan that is being given to yeah. Dorcia that she has to pay back. But the and one, it's a low interest, loan. it's a low, not a no interest or grant. It's a but it but it's not an exorbitant amount of interest. Yeah, I mean the closest model that uh, you know you could look at in comparison to this is kind of what is happening what has happened with silicon valley and equity right, right. if i work long enough at a company I'm going to get some financial windfall if that company does really well. Right. Right. And that's been the domain of like a lot of tech workers for a while to be able to become multimillionaires. And so why can't that really happen here? This is a little bit different, but it at the end of the day, if Dorcia puts in a lot of work, in like a few years she'll own that store. Right? right. And the idea is that then she can own another store and another store and another store. Right now they have nine Dorcias, I think. I think it was so yeah, somewhere somewhere around there. Yeah. Well, not nine Dorcias. They're they have different names. Yeah, but, that's, that's a different Dorcia's franchise. Right? Yeah, <laughs> other franchise owners. Right. Yeah. So right now, so we we did a little follow up call with Dorcia recently. We talked chatted with her to get the latest. They're about to start signing over the stores, um, and I believe there are. Yeah, I think there were just under 10 uh, franchise owners that are going to be participating in this, graduating from every table university and starting their stores. And it's super exciting. So this is real. It's starting to happen. And it's uh, it's very exciting to see these folks, you know, take the first steps in, into owning a business. Yeah. And I think that the community effect of this, you kind of highlighted this earlier, but it's super exciting. I mean, I was talking with one of my friends the other day who's a sommelier, and he was saying that the reason that he got into that was that he went over one of his parents' friend's house when he was a teenager. And the guy like had this huge wine collection and spent 20 minutes picking out the bottle and just like did something to his brain. Right. Made him want to go down this career path. And now he's very successful at that, right? And so what happens when Dorcia is back at her apartment down in in Compton and other people are seeing how she's operating this restaurant and like feeding off of that? Like what what are all these like downstream effects that are going to happen to that community? Yeah. And one thing I'll say is I understand where commenters are coming from because there's a lot of scams out there. Oh, sure. Right. And there's a lot of ways when you're describing a financial thing, it can sound great and then the devil is in the details. And, you know, you see that with MLMs, you know, mm. pyramid schemes, dodgy crypto coins, <laughs> you know, timeshares, uh, you know, whatever. People are naturally suspicious and they should be suspicious if they're going to be spending their money on something. And so I think it's... it. it, it what it really comes down to is the dollars and cents of it. You know, right. it's like when the rubber meets the road, how much are you working? How much money are you getting? How much risk are you taking on? How much upside is there? And how much upside is the person who brought you into it getting? Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of the questions that people in the audience had were sort of getting at that. Right. Like, okay, but who's on the hook of the loan? What happens if it doesn't work out the way we hope? And I think these are fair questions too. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't think it's any different from another type of loan. People mm -hmm. default on loans. It happens. Mm -hmm. uh, it's obviously not what the banks want and it's not what anyone who's taken out the loan wants. Mm -hmm. But there are mechanisms for dealing with that that exist. Mm -hmm. um, look no further than our former president, Donald Trump, who has <laughs> gone bankrupt several times in several different business ventures. So it's no different if someone who takes a low interest loan from a social equity program defaults on the loan and goes bankrupt or declares bankruptcy. Um, it's all risk. 
So it's not a promise uh, that is guaranteed. It's it's a promise to try your hardest to pay the back, and you know that happens. Banks lose loans. Yeah, but. Most people pay back their loans. Yeah. By, By and large, large, it doesn't wouldn't happen. wouldn't be banks. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. right. right. By and large, it doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, going bankrupt seven some odd times is an anomaly. Mm-hmm. Right. Very much an anomaly. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, it would probably uh, be very strange to consider that someone does that more than once or twice. Um, well, I, I think <laughs> there's actually another place where the risk sits, and it, I don't think it's on the, the person receiving the loan. I actually think it's on every table. Like, are they overextended with some of their ventures that they're doing? Like, could that, like, if every table goes away, what happens to the people who invest or who are trying to do this thing? Right. Right. And well, that's part of the franchise yeah. risk balancing. Yeah. Is that as every table grows its operation, they don't have to front all the cash to build these separate locations because mm-hmm. the franchisees, uh, franchise owners are taking that on right. through these loans. Right. So there is a balance of risk. Yeah. And you know, by and large, that works well. I mean, yeah. franchises have been a, a, a solid way to grow a business. For sure, but they also have a central kitchen, mm-hmm. right? So it's like a little bit more of a, they're a little bit more dependent on the, the main entity in right. order for them, for these franchisees to function, which is fine. It's like a good model, it's worth exploring. And but uh, it's it's funny to think it's like oh what happens if people don't pay back the loan it's like I'm not worried about those folks those folks seem dependable right. good and hardworking let's make sure the main thing is there because those are the, that's very depend those franchisees seem to be dependent upon fully dependent on the central yeah case. yeah mm-hmm. yeah that, and that's fair but there but I don't think they're the only ones who are doing this oh uh, for sure Definitely. there are other people who have central kitchens and things like that and even large franchise operations do a lot of centrally prepped sure. pre- pre- sure. a lot yeah. of pre-prepared food you know, yeah. look at Taco Bell even McDonald's <laughs> like there's a lot of things where it's already essentially made that's true you're just heating it up there I mean Travis who started Uber like right. his next venture is ghost kitchens like like ghost kitchens are yeah. a very different way of, you know, I, I go and have a goop salad from a ghost kitchen every week. Yeah. Sport Gwyneth Paltrow as much as I can. <laughs> Is this true? <laughs> it it really? is Gwyneth Paltrow? Yeah, yeah. I it's a good no salad, you yeah. know, I have to say. So tell me, tell me what else did people say in the comments? So people had some questions about, for example, if one person wants to own multiple locations, should they be allowed to or should they spread that out? How do you extend the sense of fairness uh, towards both you know, other people who want to own locations. And also, we had a lot of questions about the workers. How much are they paid? Mm-hmm. You know, how do you share the profits between the workers and the people who actually own the franchise? Yeah, my understanding is that they want people to be able to own multiple locations. Mm-hmm. I mean, and there is the question of, of fairness. But again, this is a for-profit company, and also there's benefits to owning multiple locations, not only for someone like Dorcia, mm-hmm. but also the kinds of learnings that can happen when you're going from one store to right. multiple stores. You know, mm-hmm. I, I have a friend who owns three Chick-fil-A's. Mm-hmm. Each of those Chick-fil-A's is different, right? And so what are the things that she can learn? And they're like, what are, what are the network effects that happen as a result of that? My understanding is they also wanted to allow people who wanted to just buy a franchise to do that absent social equity uh, with people who weren't using foundation money to get loans. If so I do believe they were hoping at some point to have both the social equity franchising as well as a traditional franchising model. <laughs> yeah, let's be clear here. Their goal is to be at the same level that like a McDonald's or a KFC is, right? What, what was the they number of stores? 30,000. 30,000, 40,000 stores? You know, that, that's, that's a lot of stores. Right? Yeah. But if your vision is like, I want someone who wants to eat a healthy meal to be able to anywhere, 
for a reasonable price, you know, to address those food deserts, whether it's in a traditionally uh, lower income neighborhood or just in an area with people who wouldn't have access to healthy food, you know, you're going to need that kind of scale, right? Yeah. And I think at that scale, one of the things that we, we talked about in terms of like healthy food, that if you could actually have a lot more healthy food in food deserts, that you could actually change a lot of like the entire food system. Right. So in the first episode, we talked about, you know, McDonald's and when they started making apple pies and they picked the type of apples they, they want to use for their apple pies, that changed a lot of what farmers made and what was available in grocery stores and everything else. And so Plenty, who is the company that we did the vertical farm episode on for Hard Reset, is also in partnership with Every Table to provide some leafy greens to them. Mm-hmm. And part of what Plenty's mission is is similar to Every Table's in that they're trying to provide jobs to people um, in South LA, mm-hmm. in low in, traditionally low income communities. Uh, we had uh, some other questions. One question was, um, is the food good? You know, yes. so this is <laughs> this I is an yes. important thing. You know, because we talk about the equity and the profit sharing, but of it, it all rests on people wanting to buy the food. Yeah. You know, I like their food. We've eaten there a few times when we yeah. were filming with them. Mm-hmm. It's not my absolute favorite place to go eat ever, but mm-hmm. I do like it. Every time I've had a, f- a meal from them, I've felt like it was pretty satisfying, and I didn't feel bad about it or feel gross. It's a very good preparation, and it's healthy. How does it work? Like, what's the menu like? If because I know it's not a traditional restaurant, obviously, it's and you have you know refrigerators, vending machines, and things like that. What's the kind of selection like? How does it work? Yeah, they usually have like, I want to say four or five different kind of meals, a lot of other single items. Most of it is prepared at that central kitchen, shipped out, so it's refrigerated cases, and if you, they have microwaves for you to heat things up. But I thought the food was really good. I've always enjoyed it. Yeah, it's, it's actually more like a few dozen. A few dozen now. Okay, well, I, yeah. So. Yeah, it's a few dozen. A few like, dozen. They have like the breakfast burritos, but they have a lot of, if you've been to, you know, sweet greens or something like that, right. you know, mm-hmm. it's a lot of bowls, mm-hmm. things yeah. that can be reheated. And then they also do partnerships with um, various chefs. Mm-hmm. So I think the their number one seller and the thing that people like the most is their trap curry chicken yeah. dish, hmm. which is like kind of like a Jamaican style jerk chicken mm-hmm. type bowl. Cool. Some questions about like, should this be a, a co-op or a public public bank or some other sort of organizational structure instead? Um, any thoughts on that? I don't know. Should this be is such a such a vague question. It's sort of it's like, well, I guess if you want to start your own, that's cool. But I mean, <laughs> what I do like about this is it is a for-profit enterprise, and the pressure of a for-profit enterprise keeps it sustainable. I like that fact about it that it it can't, you know. Uh, Sort of wash its hands of its of its requirement that it keep the uh, the expenses low enough that it can sustain operation in the long term. Yeah, this seems to be working out pretty well for them. Yeah, yeah. I think that's an underappreciated um, thing when you talk about like you know trying to do good in the world is having it be self sustaining economically. Right. Yeah. You know, there's certainly nonprofits that will, for example, just distribute healthy food to different places. But if there's no pressure for them to put it in places where people are taking it up and they're just wasting money or wasting food as a result, then it ends up not really helping as many people and not organically spreading in the way that we would hope something like this would. Yeah, price signals are really important. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, market forces, for better or for worse, are real signals about what you need to do mm-hmm. in the world. You know, the incentives to provide services in different places or at different price points, it's, it's powerful information that keeps these things working well in the long term. Mm-hmm. 
We actually had a couple questions also in terms of, is this just what banks did before the 1970s? <laughs> Which is actually something we touched on, but I'm not sure. I wasn't exactly. born before the 1970s. Well, yeah, I, so yeah, I, I, I haven't up. read that many books. Yeah. Um, so. <laughs> I mean, I, uh, I, I think it's easy to fall into a nostalgia trap. Yeah. yeah. So I, I can't confirm or deny what any banks did before 19, really 1990s. <laughs> I mean, I was born in 1979, so yeah. I have no firsthand experience of banking in the 70s at all. Yeah. But we do tend to romanticize the past a bit. And uh, it wasn't known for equal access to capital. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there, there was other problems that with yeah. banking in the 70s and beforehand. That, right. Yes. Like, so it's, yeah, it wasn't some panacea. Right. Meanest comments. I love every table as a business, but this felt like propaganda. Hmm. That's fair. It is propaganda. No, uh, it's, <laughs> I mean, it, I mean, it's propaganda for our, our point of view in that respect. So uh, we definitely have a clear. We're really excited about it. Yeah. Like, <laughs> love it. this is a cool, hard reset. Yeah. Yes. We're not investors in this or anything. We have zero financial <laughs> stake in this. They're not a client. We're not investors, but we're excited about them. We, we want them to win because what they're doing, I think, is objectively good. Yeah. The premise of hard reset is to profile people and companies and ideas that we think are cool. Mm -hmm. Right. This is not anti-capitalist. It is neoliberalism, and I'm not fooled. I don't know what that means. <laughs> it's the, yeah. I just don't know. That. Yeah. I, I don't know what all these I mean, words mean. Neoliberalism is basically what people are calling capitalists nowadays. They're like kind of the same thing. So like Obama's like neoliberal in chief. <laughs> sure. But yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, this is kind of the financial system that we have. Yeah. Right. And... Uh, you know, it's not perfect, <laughs> yeah. but I don't know what the alternative is. Right. Yeah. The alternatives aren't really working. And especially in this country, we can't even decide the level of government that should be mm -hmm. involved in our decisions. So these two I, things kind of come in concert with each other. Yeah. Typically, right. like I'm guessing from the tone of that comment that this person is more left than most people, like they would like it to be anti-capitalist, mm -hmm. but they're saying it's neoliberal and I'm not fooled because they want it to go in the anti-capitalist direction. And so with a lot of neoliberal social programs, there's a lot of means testing and all these other types of stuff that like folks who are like actually socialists are like, no, nah, none of that stuff, just give them away the money, right? And so I think that's probably some of the mechanism that this person, if they were actually wanted anti-capitalism to be the thing that they wish was sort of present, it was just like, not like, there's like too many uh, mechanisms of, like using the capitalist system rather than just rejecting the capitalist just system. Just bur burning it all down. Yeah, to some extent. Right. If but, you can't smash it, set it on fire. Yeah. yeah. So Interestingly, two comments that I saw back to back were, one is, as a socialist, it seems like wealth distribution, <laughs> but where the purse strings aren't controlled and conditions set by anyone, but institutions that are currently very rich and powerful, the status quo is preserved. <laughs> Next comment. As a communist, <laughs> I would like to say this is actually a great step in the right direction to fight capitalism and slowly return to a socialistic system. And return to a socialistic system. <laughs> yeah. One thing I am sort of reminded of, I, yeah, I actually- a lot to unpack there. <laughs> yeah. I used to moderate like a, you know, a panel talk show podcast kind of a thing. And at one point we, we did one on economics and capitalism and socialism. And uh, one of the economists, was just like, these words have become meaningless. Like oh, every right. government has social institutions, every government has private enterprise. Mm -hmm. You're just moving the needle here to there or something like that. It's like, it's just not a productive way to talk about things because it's way too black and white. Yeah. yeah. 
Absolutely. A hundred percent. It's much more important to talk about the tools you're using and what uh, ends you're using those tools for rather than the system overarching thing that mm-hmm. you're, you expect to be from an ideological perspective because mm-hmm. the ideologies are all messy now. It's everything, yeah. everywhere. Yeah, whenever I hear this kind of rant around socialism or anti-socialism, you know, it's really the the owners of these like large NFL teams that I think about <laughs> in terms of like getting lots of money from the government well, in order to build stuff that profits for them. Yeah. You know, it's just, and then they're like, oh, well, there's going to be a lot more money generated in this community. And they're like, it never really happens. No. Yeah, not really. You know, I think when we're talking about these like large systems, I think one thing to bear in mind is that every table is one company (laughs) (laughs) and they're relatively small and they're trying something out and we should be trying out a lot of different things. And I think what's really exciting right now in terms of where we are with regards to new ideas, I don't, I don't think they're venture capital based, but you know, from like 2010 to 2020, a lot of the VC money was getting poured into things that were relatively low hanging fruit, right? Like we're, talking about a lot of software companies mm-hmm. and you know things that really rely on that. And a lot of that money, a lot of those companies is like have been started. And so now the kinds of investments that are having to be made are just really interesting. Like we're getting a lot more hardware companies that are out right. there, a lot more companies that are really trying to tackle big, interesting issues. And um, I think the next 10 years are gonna be really exciting. Yeah. yeah. Wasn't that mean? Sometimes people are more focused on the subject or the idea mm. versus the narrator versus, you know, it varies. <laughs> they, they talk about they have any the stupid voice. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> I can look again. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks everyone for checking out this episode of the Hard Reset Podcast. Make sure you like and subscribe so you can continue to listen. We love to answer your questions and dive into these subjects with uh, as much depth as we can. We'll look forward to talking about our next episode and the next podcast and hope you'll join us. I'll, I'll, I'll wrap those up. Yeah. Yeah, I think that it's really interesting to see. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that. Stop it. Stop it. I'm trying. I'm trying. I'm sending. Stop it. Tell me what. Tell me, why did you start? I can start. Fucking jump in here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> I can't stop. Oh my God. You did this. I was so ready. 